Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Parents Read the Darndest Things. I am Kayla with Adult Services here at CPL. And I'm Lane from Children's. So this episode we're going to talk about the book Wuhan Diary, Dispatches from a Quarantine City by Fang Fang, and it was translated oh, by Michael Berry. It was translated by Michael Berry. Thank you, Lane. You're welcome. Um, so it is about 400 pages, but it is a collection of essays. She did an essay a day during the quarantine in Wuhan in China. And it's pretty interesting the differences between the start of their quarantine and the start of the American quarantine. But we basically decided to read this this month because it is the anniversary, happy anniversary. of the pandemic. <laughs> so happy anniversary, team. Yeah, this was, um, I think... I think a year gave me enough time to be ready to read a book about the pandemic. And I looked on Goodreads when I was looking into this book, and there's, like, a whole list of pandemic books that were published about, like, pandemic-y things. Mm-hmm. And I have not wanted to read any of them. But this one was a good start because it is, like, distant enough yeah. that it no longer feels, like, tiresome to learn about. And it's also not us. It's not American in its viewpoint. So it was kind of an, a nice perspective because it didn't feel so much like my reality. So it was bearable. I can feel, yeah, I can feel you on that. I have definitely come across books where it's like caring for yourself in quarantine or connecting with others in quarantine or a lot of like things that are meant to kind of keep you upbeat. And I appreciate what they're trying to do, but I don't want that because just seeing them actually makes me feel sadder that they were necessary. But just to have, like, the hard facts in front of me about somebody else's distant experience, yeah. I can handle that. Oh, you, like, struck a nerve with me. Yeah. Okay, I'm so tired of people telling me to be healthy during the pandemic. This is your time to learn a new hobby. To really get in touch with yourself. Like, no. Uh, I don't want to do any of that. I think it's fine to just say this is the year you were just, like, meh. Like, if you were sad, then you were well, sad. It's like, meh. Like, it's fine to just be like, yeah, this year sucked. I don't have to make it, like, positive. That's toxic. You don't have to be positive all the time. Yeah. I hate you don't that. have to smile. No. <laughs> Stop telling me to smile. I don't want to. I don't want to be happy. I want to be pouty. Gives you wrinkles. Yeah, it does. I want to do things that are good for my skin. Yeah. And so probably the salt for my tears is probably good for my skin. Yeah, probably. That's like a mask. There you go. But yeah, I think that, yeah. And and she didn't feel overly um, chipper about the pandemic. It was just, yeah, these are my experiences. Good or bad, this is what happens. Love that. Yeah, she did, yeah, she, and she recorded it for, she did 60 entries for, and it just coincidentally ended up being for the entirety of the lockdown. It ended on the day that the lockdown in Wuhan was lifted, but... She didn't mention anything for that entire time about, oh, my friend said that they're going to start baking bread. Oh, this friend said they're going to learn French. Yeah, nobody was picking up on these things. People were literally just trying to get by. And it also, you know, like, that's a good distinction to make is, like, I think here in the States, we kind of took it as, okay, this is an opportunity. We don't need to, we're not going to work. We're going to really work on ourselves. It's going to be positive. It's going to be a mindful moment. 
Whereas this felt like that was their job now. Like handling the pandemic felt like a job in this kind of perspective. Like every day she woke up and goes, I'm going to fight this pandemic the only way I know how. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And it felt like weirdly worky. Like the extremes that they took it to, just like, okay, never's going to pull together. It felt like 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 a task. Like this was their mission and this is how they were going to stop the pandemic. And I think Americans took it in a completely different way. Not good or bad. It just felt very different. Yeah. So there was none of that like positive, upbeat, you know, when something good happened, she was like, I loved that for us. Yeah. Now it's time to get my mask on and go back to being in isolation. Like it felt mm-hmm. like a job. Yeah. It was like they focused on it, whereas Americans tried not to focus on it. So yeah. Americans looked for a distraction. And maybe, or maybe not, that is part of why it lasted so long. But in Wuhan, they weren't looking for a distraction. It was their entire focus. Every single individual in that city was focused on it to like eradicate it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a fight. And she, yeah, she uses a lot of confrontational words when she talks about it, you know? Yeah, where we don't, you know, like it was very like they kind of took a passive approach to it, and not saying that's good or bad. Like one didn't handle it any better than the other. Obviously, we everyone had the same experience globally that it's a pandemic. Yeah, but it was interesting to see the ways it was approached. Like even now in the United States, it is a passive thing that is happening to us, and we bear it. Whereas here, it was like a battle. That like she used fight in this book a lot. Yeah, and it yeah. felt like confrontational in some ways. Like this was a thing that was happening to them, and they were going to resist it and fight it. It's very interesting the differences, and I didn't really pick up on that until we're kind of looking at the the approaches we took emotionally to it. Yeah, there was none of this like soft hearted like oh, we need to be mindful. Like no, I don't think that word ever came up. Yeah. Yeah, there's a part where she mentions, like, all the, you know, all the people who, like you said, it kind of looked like work. The volunteers who yeah. came together, especially a lot of the young people she talks about. She was like, you know, people who were in school, people who couldn't go and do things anymore. This is what they did. They were young and able to be the people for their neighborhoods who went and got food, yeah. who organized situations. And they made it like work. But maybe if you're not able to do that, your work is to grit your teeth and bear it and stay inside. Yeah. And that's your job now, to get through it. Yeah, it was very, like, I know here it was kind of like an exception to the rule. Like, you might hear in the news about one kid going to the grocery store for his grandmother. Mm -hmm. And that made the news. But in Wuhan, it was like, no, that's what people did. They got together, they split and divided all the work that needed to be done, and said, okay, well, it's your turn to go to the grocery store, and then in two weeks it'll be someone else's turn for the whole complex. And that just didn't really happen here in the States. I think we are, you know, more isolated in that way. So I wonder if that kind of played into the feelings of isolation. It's like this was yeah. still very much community-based working. Like, this is how yeah. we fight the pandemic. And then here we kind of, like, internalized it. How do we make ourselves better? How do we use this time to improve us, Yeah, ourselves, individuals? It's a very interesting difference. Yeah, it, you're right. Oh, I, and now that we're talking about it, I hadn't thought about it. it we focused a lot more on self-improvement. Yeah. They focused so much on community. 
and getting through the pandemic. Yeah. Like this is this is like the difference I think between like really active approach to facing a pandemic mm-hmm. and a very passive one that this is happening to us and it sucks. Yeah. I would like to see more I guess now that I'm thinking about it from other countries. Like I want to see the perspectives in like when Italy and they're, you know, they're invading each other from balconies. Like mm-hmm. I want to know their everyday experiences with it. Maybe not 400 pages of it though cuz that's a lot. Yeah, but yeah. it would be interesting. I understand that she had to basically write an essay a day, not just like a page a day, and it ended up being so long to meet literally her publishing requirements, which is why she started the diary in the first place. But if we were talking about if she didn't have to do that just to get the information out there to the world, and that was the goal, this could have been like cut in half. For and sure. I still would have understood what she was saying. And a lot of it was her relaying daily information from other media sources that maybe people didn't want to read because she did mention like that she knew a lot of her readers were saying they didn't want to read the news or they didn't trust certain things you know they were skewing numbers this that and the other and she did criticize those people and say yeah you should think for yourself and you should take in information which I appreciated from her but so then she also made it a point to be like this is what they have said about these statistics from these hospitals these government officials da 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 yeah, she, she did kind of a good job of breaking it down. Yeah. Which was really interesting. Um, for me, like, I'm not on social media. Mm-hmm. I don't have any. I don't have anything but a Reddit account and a TikTok. And Discord, obviously. <laughs> but, like, I don't see a lot of information that's from social media mm-hmm. because I don't have it. Yeah. So I wonder, like, even that difference. Like, she spent a lot of time saying, well, I saw this video from a friend. I saw this video on this page. Or I saw this video or was sent to me in messaging. And there was a lot of, like, social communication that's virtual, mm-hmm. which we do a lot of, too. And I know that also played into some misinformation from Wuhan and from the States. Yeah. Is that a lot of the battle of fighting the pandemic was also fighting misinformation from people from civilians from hospitals from skewed numbers from the government in both places misinformation played a huge role in yeah. how effective protocols were and and yeah. how strictly someone believed like the the steps that you took were valid or not yes and it was scary to see that that was also the case in Wuhan yes because you would like to think I guess we wouldn't like to think, but unfortunately, maybe you would think it's just an American thing. Yeah. That information is spread so falsely sometimes. And then it was kind of sad to see that there was so much misinformation in Wuhan as well. And I did like the way that she broke it down and kind of put things in layman's terms because she would be like, oh, my doctor friend gave us this information. What that really means is that they changed the way they, the numbers are down because they changed the way they evaluated cases. Yeah. And that wasn't something, by the time it trickled down to certain people, you know, on the everyday Joe level in America, people didn't understand it that way. They would just be like, oh, the numbers are down. Oh, the numbers are up. And then people are trying to investigate themselves. Yeah. Why? Instead of just having a government official say, we changed the evaluation. This is the way it is done now. And these are the numbers. Yeah. I mean, that that kind of trickle-down information never works. Yeah, but it happens everywhere. I mean, I know for sure it happens in the workplace because mm-hmm. I experience it all the time. Mm-hmm. Where, like, someone will talk to me about something 
and they'll think I have all the information, but really I have about a quarter of the information I would need to make a decision. Because we assume that it's getting filtered down. It's like the game of telephone. Like if I say something and then it gets passed down to four people, I don't have the original message. Yep. And that's what happens with misinformation, especially from a government level. You know, um, here it kind of took on, oh, well, the numbers are down. But then we also heard that they changed something. They changed the numbers. Yeah. We can't trust them. And it's, it's yes. true enough. But it's not really what happened. You know, the numbers changed because XYZ changed. Variants yeah. changed. But what everyday people hear is they changed the numbers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting problem, especially with the rise of social media and information. The trickle-down effect is more apparent, and it happens quicker, mm-hmm. and it gets more distilled. And I think that was one of the most apparent like issues with the pandemic is misinformation was so prevalent like it just and then you had people questioning medical opinions and this happened in Wuhan as well is that people were so divided on how they perceived and what they did with the information they did have interesting don't know what government needs to do about that but it's clearly a problem it was so interesting because yeah I thought it was just an American thing too and you always have these uh, stereotypes that in China or in Asian cultures particularly, like, there is so much censorship and social media suppression in particular. And there was, but not to the degree, I think, that you stereotypically think there is. Yeah. She would say, oh, I'm going to post this. I know it's going to get taken down because I criticized, like, somebody by name. Whatever. Yeah. But they didn't, like, completely delete her account and, like, shut her away. You know, like, people extremely sane. But it's also, like, clearly that didn't stop misinformation. People would spread misinformation, censor internet employees, who she referenced a lot, like an entire whatever department of people who censored things on the internet, would take it down, would try to stop it, but it didn't matter. Yeah. So the way that it's done in the West or in the United States and the way that it's done in China are very different, but we ended up with the same result of misinformation. Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested to see what people think a real solution could be there. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a discussion that, you know, as librarians, we hear all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you really get information now? Um, when you have, you know, media can be biased, and that's mm-hmm. the nature of media. It's so hard to get actual information that you can understand anywhere yes. from any source. And it's, I mean, that's a struggle that we face all the time. Like, I remember in library school, we talk a lot about information literacy mm-hmm. and how do you read information and how do you really believe it and how do you really trust it? And no one really knows the answer here. And I, I was kind of happy to think, okay, well, it does happen elsewhere. Like, this is now a global problem that is much like a pandemic, like mm-hmm. misinformation. It's dangerous um, and it's divisive. And then you have people who are polarized on things that shouldn't be polarized. And I think that happened in both China and the States is that there are very conflicting views on what was being asked of citizens and if it was effective and why it was effective. And that really boiled down to the information they were getting in their lives on a daily basis. Yes. Which news outlets were you listening to? You know, were were things being suppressed or censored? Yeah. Um, And these are things that don't just happen with the pandemic, but I really think the pandemic made it more obvious 
obviously misinformation happens all the time. But the pandemic was really like, yo, this is a problem because yeah. we live on the web now. We're so we're so bombarded with like different messages mm-hmm. and from every front. So I don't know. That's the thing that I really think that we should spend a lot of time thinking on. And I think kids have a better grasp than adults do on how yeah. they on how they get information and how they filter it. How they how they discern what is yeah. viable information. Kids are way more information literate than adults are right now. I can, sure. I can believe it for sure because it's kids or just generally younger people who are teaching their parents. Well, just because you saw this on Facebook doesn't mean it's real, you know? Yeah. It didn't come from, I mean, even, eh, I don't know, some CNN, whatever. It didn't come yeah. from, even a news site, it came from your friend Stacy, who got it from Joe. And, like, yeah. it was just his opinion that got passed around. Like, Mom, that's not real. But Mom doesn't want to believe that. So now Mom thinks that a mesh mask works or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it is really crazy to think about it, but kids really do have... I don't want to say they don't trust anything, mm-hmm. but I think kids are so used to taking things on the internet with a grain of salt and going, you can't believe everything you see on the internet. Yeah. Like, there's so, there's skepticism, I guess is a good word to use, for any information they ha- they hear. So, until it comes from three sources, they're like, mm, That's so great, though. And that's exactly how you get literate in information. Yeah. Skeptical of it. Until you see it verified over and over and over again, it's not true. Yeah. It's like a science experiment. One positive experiment does not make it anything. You have to be able to repeat it. And I think that's information. It's something that, like, got discussed in this account, and her perspective was that she, she spent a lot of time filtering what she saw. Yeah. And I think that that's something that... Americans just aren't either used to doing or they're really biased towards one source because it agrees with them personally. Yes. And I don't think that there was that in this. She never believed a source solely because it agreed with her personally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a that's a key thing to being information literate. So something that I thought about when I was reading this was how you kind of filter things. Yes. I think that's a great point. It does make me think a little bit as an aside, like, she is obviously as a professional writer, like I think she has a PhD. She's a very highly educated woman. Yeah. And everyone in her life is very highly educated, all of her friends, her family. So everybody she was getting information from and sharing it with was very scholarly, you yeah. could say. But people who are more of an average education, who don't have high institutional learning, I wonder if they would discern it the same way. Yeah. Or, you know, do they just rely on people like her for the discernment for them? That's a good point. Yeah, how do we aid in that? Yeah. How do you aid the everyday yeah. information takers? Like, we hear it called the media, which yeah. I hate because it makes it sound like it's an organization. It's not. It's yeah. not like the media <laughs> is not like one thing. It's no longer like broadcast news. Yeah. I mean, you could say that it's YouTube and a YouTube creator. I watch a guy on Twitch, and I love Yelly Guy. That's what I call him. I don't remember his name, but he yells a lot. And I love him. But he also takes information, and I feel like he does a good job of filtering it down for everybody. Mm-hmm. And he will even say, I personally, this is what I think. You need to go fact check it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when someone sends him something from Twitter, he'll go, 
can someone verify this? And I think that those kind of people teach other people how to filter information. And we need them. So, Yelly yeah. Guy, I applaud you. You're my favorite Twitch streamer. <laughs> if you are listening to this podcast, please send me merch. <laughs> Yelly Guy. Who is it? I'm going to look it up. I'm sure he knows exactly. He knows. You know who Yelly Guy is. If you know who Yelly Guy is, hashtag Yelly Guy. <laughs> I do appreciate that people who take on the responsibility of um, sharing information or educating them make that part of their dialogue. You know, this hasn't been verified. I am admitting that I'm not certain of this. Or you need to verify this yourself. Like, take responsibility for understanding information on your own. I think that's important. And just, like, saying that very casually but ingraining it into your listeners or your viewers Yeah, just makes it part of their information habits. Yeah. What else did we talk about in this book? What, um... What I like to talk about is how, and it, what you were just saying kind of made me think about it, um, how she can be kind of neutral. Yeah. Like how you're saying she is discerning things. Um, the way she didn't place blame very directly on anybody. I mean, at points she did, and she yeah. showed her anger towards, like, particular officials or government bodies saying, you know, why aren't you doing better? Where is the solution? But then she would admit, I mean, this isn't my field. I'm not certain what steps you could take to fix it. But surely somebody can work with somebody else to figure it out. Yes. Yeah. I really liked I liked how it was it felt wishy washy to me, but I'm also very like a staunch kind of person. Yes. And that's probably a very American trait. But yeah, she was very back and forth. Like people did things wrong, but we should help them make it right. Yeah. Yeah, she did that a lot and she would she even criticized government officials or how they handle things and very directly would say we should have done this quicker we should have addressed this quicker we should have released information on contagion quicker Mm -hmm. but it never made her anti-china or anti-wuhan yeah and that was interesting because sometimes in the states if you criticize your government you're seen as anti-patriotic like and that really did play a lot into the pandemic. Like, I mean, I feel like without picking a side, you could say that the politics in the United States pandemic made things very divided. Yeah. And I like to see that most people, both here and in China, are, are able to say, hey, I didn't like this, but I am still very much proud of where I'm from, and I like where I'm from, and I like being Chinese or American. Yeah. But you're still able to criticize. And I feel like that's where that came in is that she she did a good job of balancing her love of her country and her community and science and her own life, but also was critical of things. Yeah. And I think that's that's a difference between hating something and being critical. Critical does not mean you hate it. It means I see something that could be improved upon. Mm-hmm. And I did like that that very neutral. Yeah. I think that's a good talent. way to put it. Being Critical doesn't mean you hate it. It just means you see that it could be improved upon. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, and she was she was very much like that. Even when she was clearly angry, she was just like, I'm just angry because I feel like we could have worked together to make it better. Yeah. Yeah, and there was that very, you know, again, it was just very communal. It was just like, and it was always about the people, which is, in a sense, you know, it's yeah. very patriotic. She was just like, the important thing is human life. And the people here in our community 
and our city and our nation to like we need to do everything we can to work together to make it better we don't need to be fighting each other on the internet or you know delaying food deliveries or criticizing pop-up hospitals like everybody's trying she did always acknowledge that everybody was trying yeah, and I think the few times she did get mad was because people weren't working to to be better. I remember one one instance, um, she was talking about um, a video she saw of a woman who wasn't wearing her mask. Mm-hmm. And for just the record, mask wearing, I think, in Wuhan and in China was never an issue. Like, no. it, um, before they even started locking down, she had been wearing a mask because she was going to the hospital and stuff to visit a, a sick friend. Mm-hmm. So mass culture is very different, I think, in China than it is in the States. Just to make that point was... Very basic, very common. It's a manner. It's like, you know, you sneeze into your arm, will they wear masks? Like, this yeah. is... It was so standard of a protocol that when people started getting sick, everyone just started wearing masks. And that's what they did for SARS, and she brought that up. Yeah. So this was already ingrained in their culture to wear masks. Yes, nobody had to tell them to do it. It was just, oh, I need to go to the store and buy a mask. Yeah. Just immediately. Nobody had to say it. Nobody had to say it. Nobody had to advertise it or, like, oh, yeah. And she did mention a video of a woman who wasn't wearing the mask. And she did get really upset. She was like, well, why not? Like, this is your job now. This is our job. And I think that kind of, like, it kind of circles back to their sense of duty that they came with the pandemic. And I just, that was a really interesting difference, I think that I keep circling back to because it was a really obvious one. Yeah. That's why I hung up on it. Yeah. And just, if you see a video in the States of somebody not wearing their mask, they're yelling at people who are. Yeah. For timidly, politely asking them to put one on. Yeah. For the safety of other people. And... I hope it's something that countries have learned to share practices with. Yeah. Like, I hope that in the future, if you have a cold, you wear a mask. When you go to the store, because, I mean, other countries just, that's a, that's a polite thing to do. Yeah. And I, I want to see some of these exchanges between countries that are just yeah. like, okay, well, this has given us an opportunity to learn and grow from each other. Like, why wouldn't you make this your best practice? Yes, like, like cultural learning. I'm I here just, for it. I just love that exchange. Like, I would love to see in America one day where, okay, like, I have to go to the store, but I have a cold or the flu. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put my mask on. And, and then other people are normal. They're like, oh, yeah, that's that's fine. Nobody's staring at you. Nobody's ostracizing you. Yeah, like, you're fine. You're good. Oh, I would like, love that. Yeah, thanks. Now I can touch the orange juice that you put back because I know that you didn't sneeze all over yeah. it. And it's like, it makes sense. Like, you sneeze. We teach kids how to like, sneeze in their arms and stuff. It's literally the same thing. Except yeah. you don't have an arm. You have a mask. Yeah, you were, you're containing it so much better Yeah, by wearing a mask. And the rest of your body is free for movement and for touching things yeah. in a much more safe way. And it hurts way. nobody. So I like I like love that. I, I thought that that was a really interesting thing. Like page one, she was like, well, good thing I already have a mask. And I was like, love that. Like, how cool. Um, and then people were gifting masks to each other when they realized, I don't even think it was that they ran out, but just that they couldn't go out and buy them. Yeah. So people who were able to make special deliveries for supplies would be like, oh, and by the way, here's 20 and 95 masks. Yeah, it was such a standard, like, thing to do. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I appreciated it a lot. And, yeah, again, I love the point you're making, like, the cultural exchange. I love that we can 
take something from them and learn it and implement it as a best practice instead of just being like, oh, well, in China they wear masks. Isn't that crazy? And then continue to go to the store yeah. with a flu. Like, oh, in China they wear a mask when they're sick. I'm going to do that too because that makes sense. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I hope that we kind of take a lot of these practices and carry on. Like, I think um, workplaces that if you could work remotely, do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because it makes sense. It makes sense. Like, I'm sorry. Like, if you if you have a job that you don't have to go in a building for, why would you now? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Like, it was a nice way to really break with tradition mm-hmm. and really go, well, why are we doing this? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. if you have a completely online job and you work in a cubicle, why would you need to ever go into a building? Why would you need a cubicle? Like, if you yeah. could do it from home, it doesn't make sense. It, it caused people to question so many so things. So many things. And it, it made you criticize a lot. Like, okay, like, maybe on a more extreme side, in that example, you had to go to work in the cubicle for your totally online job just so somebody higher up could watch you and, like, stare at you and make sure you would work. You were working and it's kind of like, yeah. It's like a creepy, toxic workplace building up to the class war, like, argument type thing. Yeah. But as soon as people just start to criticize and say, well, why? Because this is more cost efficient. This is safer. This is safe. This is, like, better for somebody's mental health. This is better for somebody's physical health. It saves, yeah, it saves space. It saves the building money. It just made so much sense. I like that people started questioning the way things have always been. Yes. Like, oh, so why are we why are we doing this? It's so nice it's that so nice. It's so nice that well, that's just the way it's done, or that's the way it's always been. Is no longer a valid answer. Yeah. It's well, why don't we try this? Well, I don't understand that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this now. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of things I miss about pre-pandemic life. Oh yeah. You know, like I missed a lot of the things that even my job used to do. Like, I miss all the kids, I miss doing story times, like I miss having that thing, but now I know I can exist without it. Like my job will always adapt and evolve. Mm -hmm. And then I'm not stuck into one thing. And I think that really, I think that's what makes people uncomfortable is the way that's always been, Mm -hmm. is not the way it's always going to be. Yeah. And we hold so tightly to like, well, we need to always do this because that's our way of doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but why? And I think, I mean, it really does make a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's also been kind of cool to see, like, things changing and to see people evolve and, like, realize that they're not rooted down to one thing. Yeah. And especially, that was an interesting thing to think about in her book, because in Chinese culture, she would bring up a lot of traditional practices that people were missing out on that were deeply deeply important to like them. Like the Lunar New Year came up so frequently. Yeah, because um, they went to lockdowns right at the yeah. Lunar New Year. And then she would talk about, you know, all these people who passed away, they were cremating their bodies yeah. because they, you know, just weren't sure about contagion and stuff. So people couldn't go through, like, a traditional mourning period that lasted, like, I think it was 39 or 49 yeah. days. And then towards the end of the quarantine, another holiday came up. I can't remember what it was called, but... It was, it was a period to honor the dead. Yeah. And she was just like, we still can't go outside and participate in that. And doubly hard is now for the people who yeah. have lost family members or loved ones in any kind of way. They can't do these traditional practices. But they didn't say, well, it's, it's important because it's tradition. I'm going to do it anyway. 
they stayed inside. Yeah. And it was really hard for them. And it's probably going to be really traumatic and give them, you know, mental health issues that they have to work through. Yeah. And, you know, among other things. But they did it so that they didn't make it. It was their duty at that, that time. It was their duty. And they didn't make it a larger problem. Oh, it was very, the whole thing is just really interesting. And I think years from now, we'll really see the effect of the pandemic. You know, like, I think all of us have kind of targeted what's important in our own lives. Like, the things that we're not willing to compromise on. Yeah. You know, when we go back to pan, pre, or I guess, post-pandemic life, <laughs> you know, um, hopefully Wuhan will go back to having their traditional practices. Because yeah. that's not something they're willing to give up. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. But hopefully we adopt mask culture. Like, we start wearing masks because that is something that we can change. Yeah. I think it's been a really cool opportunity to see those lines being drawn. I don't know what that means for me because I'm not very traditional in any sense. So I don't yeah. think I'm really, like, hanging on or missing anything. But, you know, there are certain things about my my own life that I do miss. Yeah. I'm just I, – I don't think it'll be apparent now. It'll be really obvious two years from now when we yeah. see what stuck and what changed and what we didn't hold on to. Um very interested to see what that's gonna look like yeah like how many of these big shops like huge corporate offices are just not gonna be there anymore yeah how many people are just gonna stay working from home or yeah. or things that popped up to aid in the pandemic response like yeah. will they adapt in some kind of way to stay in existence or will they fade away yeah i'm interested to see and how people will look back on the pandemic in like 10 years like the way she looked back on SARS that meant nothing to me because I was like seven when SARS happened um so that was very distant to me and I didn't really understand what she was referencing but now like I'm old enough and I've lived through it the way that she had lived through SARS so it'll be an interesting parallel that in like 10 or 15 years I can talk to somebody who's my age now and be like well you know when the pandemic happened and you were like seven yeah I was living and working through it, and we did all these things. Life was so different. Yeah. But we made it through, and I feel you know, like if something good. wild happens again, we could. I know that we can make it through. You know, like Y2K, when everyone was like, Y2K, the whole world's going to implode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, we need to prepare. I feel like this is what Y2K was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, like Y2K happened, and nobody cared. Like, the, nothing crashed. The computers were fine. And nobody had any idea what changing to a new millennium was going to mean. Yeah. And it meant absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. It was fine. We had a party. It was a more spicy New Year's. But other than that, like, nothing really happened. Yeah. But now I think this was what everyone was afraid of. Like, yeah. a life-altering occurrence that changed everyone globally. Yeah. And I think this was it. Like, even SARS kind of had pockets. Yeah. And it was an epidemic, but this was literally a pandemic for every country, for every person. Yeah. There's nowhere that it didn't affect. And I think this is what Y2K was supposed to be. Like, yes, everybody bought all the toilet paper. Everyone panicked. Yeah. And we're still panicking because yeah. we're so ready to, like, go back to real life now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen, like, yeah. anytime and, soon. And things are, even when things are safer or healthier... It's still going to be different because yeah. those those practices have merged or people have just lived through an experience that has made their life different. I mean, even like pandemic babies. Yeah. Like they're going to be different because... Like toddlers growing up now yeah. who are like... Are, okay, so I did 
we kind of like did a trial run story time outside socially distanced just to see what it was going to be like Mm -hmm. just to see just to test the waters yeah and it was fine we had regular families show up and they wore their mask and everyone stayed apart from each other and none of those things i had to tell them to do it is now i think just an understood thing like stay away from each other yeah like don't get right up next to each other like i think those practices will end up being just part of life yeah they like if someone stands too close to you, you're going to be like, um, why are you all about me? Yeah. And it's going to be, instead of like literally breathing on your shoulder, it's going to be like three feet instead of six. And you're going to be like, wow, you're really close to me. Yeah. Get away. And I just think that like certain parts of this are going to be it kind of ingrained in us. Like it's yeah. been a year now. I don't see myself wanting to go to a, a concert with 500 people. Can you imagine? Can you, like, even think about yourself, like, going to, like, a huge... No, I can't. Like, I'd be like, mm, I, I don't know. It, I, would, I would love it. Um, I'd be into it. I see. I don't even think I could, like, do huge crowds in one small contained building anymore. Like, I didn't enjoy it to begin with, and now I'm like, ooh, see, I can live without it, which means I don't need to do it. Uh, I'm just, like, kind of wondering if this is... I don't know. I'm kind of interested to see what sticks. Like, what part yeah. of this are we going to be like, no, I actually, like, really prefer six feet away from everybody. Yeah. Like, get away from me. Yeah. Or which people are going to say, you know, oh, I prefer, like, is it going to affect different, like, demographics of people yeah. differently? Is it going to stick with different types of people differently? That will be interesting to see. And I'm sure people are already working on that. Yep. Or studies will come out in a year, in five years, in ten years, whatever. That show how it has affected different groups of people, and I'm very interested to see that kind of data. I'm really interested to see children. Yes. Because uh, for any parents who are listening, obviously this is parents read the darn things. I am so sorry. I cannot imagine having to do school right now with one kid, much less like several. Yes. I, I, it's like one of my biggest concerns is like the education factor there cannot be learning going on i mean like whatever you say there cannot be actual learning going on and especially in the start of the pandemic when it was just like okay virtual online throw it together and nobody had any clue yeah i'm so sorry kids are incredibly adaptable they're resilient but that's a lot yeah i would be interested to see studies about pandemic children yeah. Especially in that, like, vital forming years, those, yeah. like, three to eight. I'm really interested yet in seeing them very, very young. Like, do they naturally want to stay away from other people, like, because of how distancing and they see that happening? Or, like, what are they, are they less active because they were always inside for a long time instead of, like, yeah. going outside and running around? Do they prefer less screens now? Like, I mean, mm. kids used to be screen obsessed, but now they're all on a screen all the time. Are they kind of backing away from that? Like, I want to see those studies about these pandemic babies mm-hmm. in five years. Yeah. Like, I'll be dying to know. And I'm pretty sure, okay, so I read this, and I wasn't sure where, if this was, like, just a theory or if this was an actual thing, but, so there's Gen Z, Mm -hmm. and then there is Gen Alpha, and Alpha is, like, the newest babies. I think they're zero to five right now. Oh, okay. I could be wrong. But anyway, Gen Z used to stretch until, like, I think it's six to 21 or something like that, years of age, Uh right now. So Gen A was, Gen Alpha was, like, the newest 
generation, so like the zero to five, like very young children. But I'm pretty sure I've read that they're now going to be like a pandemic generation. Like, you know how the greatest generation was the World War II? Yeah. Okay, so I think that the pandemic babies are going to be those like formative years. Not yeah. babies born in a pandemic, but maybe. So anyway, I think that I've read that they're they're considering like studying that generation and it's going to be like a pandemic baby generation. Like these kids in their formative years who grew up in a pandemic. Because I think the influence on them are going to be the most significant. I can agree with that. I wonder though, since at this time the pandemic has only been about a year, year and a half, what do you think about like the greatest generation and how that was several years? years. Yeah, you could definitely still study like how it influenced them and their development, but I just don't know, like, would you call them, like, the pandemic babies? Because that's, I mean, you're looking at, like, an incredibly small age group. I'm being a realist here when I say, like, you know, we're going through the second summer of a pandemic. Yeah. Where, you know, at least for, like, my occupation, this is a big thing for us. This is, like, a huge event. Summer reading is when we have the most people come in the library. And we're way behind. We don't know what to do because it's not normal. So this is the second summer. Yeah. Right? School starting back in the fall, I don't think they'll go back to being 100% in person, no mask, everyday normal. So I feel yeah, like I this is at, at bare minimum, we're going to be two years in. Yeah. Which yeah. I think for kids who are developing, especially in that five to six, yeah, they'll have spent first and second grade. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, like... I just think that, like, preschool and kindergarten, all those formative years will be spent in something they've never had the opportunity to have anything different. Yeah. So two years is a a big chunk of time. I mean, not enough to really fundamentally change their whole lives, but I think it will. Yeah. I think it would definitely influence their behavior. I think it will influence their behavior. Yeah. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, I don't know the effect it'll have on high school kids. I don't yeah. know. Probably less of an effect because they know what life was beforehand. But for those kids who don't, I don't yeah. know. I think it'll be interesting to see. And, and I'm not a hopeful person, so I don't think that, like, fall <laughs> comes around. I like, okay, for, like, the new year and everyone was like, it's a new year. It's over. It's done. It's a new year. Well, you I'm just like, don't get to decide. That's not how science works. Exactly. Like, time is irrelevant to a pandemic. Like, it'll be over when it's over. When we stop having surges. When the numbers go down. When we have herd immunity. I don't know when it would go. But we're at least looking at two years minimum. Yeah. And we thought it was going to be three months or something. Yeah. So, I'm just kind of stopped hoping that life as normal is ever going to come back soon. It'll come back eventually. Yeah. But it's not going to be soon. Yeah, and it'll still be different. So it's just more, you know, ride the wave. I think we're we're all, like, holding our breath going, is this a permanent change? Or is this this just, like, a long three years? And I'm sure that's how anyone who, I'm sure that's how the greatest generation felt. Like, is this, like, a year or is this the rest of my life? Are we going to be at war the rest of my life? Yeah. I don't know. It changed things for us. The World Wars changed life for everybody. I think this will be a life-changing pandemic, but how much? I don't know. Yeah. It certainly left its, like, mental mark on people. For sure. For sure. And it's, like, thinking that, like, 
the strongest thing I think she said, and she had a lot of like very quotable moments, but she did. Yeah, she said, "Remember, there is no such thing as victory here. There is only the end." Yeah. And the end that she was referring to was, of course, just the end of quarantine. But she's right. There is no victory, even after you say, "Oh, we could cure this virus," like you know, which is yeah. unlikely. But just to say that you know you could suppress it, you could say. You can't say that's a victory. You could say it's the end. This is the end to quarantine life. This is the end to quote pandemic life, and we can move post pandemic. But I don't think you could ever call it a victory uh-uh. because of all the negative and harsh things that have happened to people along the way. Yeah, I just think that it takes like a certain amount of bravery to say like, yeah, this happened, mm-hmm. and to embrace it fully and say. For better or for worse, this is like an off, like a life-altering moment that happened in our lives globally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a scary, huge, immense thought to have. And I think if people are still not ready to go there, yeah. And I think that the more things that we see, like her diary from Wuhan, like the more people share their own experiences, the more we see that it's not just you who feels this way. It's not yeah. you who's not ready to go there. It's nobody really knows what to do with all this. Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of like, it's not a hopeful thought. It certainly doesn't make me feel better. Yeah. But you don't I feel alone. Yeah, yeah, it's like just a new, I hate that word too, new reality. It's a new yeah. reality. Welcome to the new, how new can the new reality be when it's, yeah, it's, been, the, yeah, when it's been the new reality for two years? But I think, you know, people still aren't adjusting. There's And there's nothing wrong with that because how do you? adjust yeah I think that this is just a lot of there's no right way to do it I think that that the book made it very clear that there was no right way for a government to handle this there was no right way for people to handle this there was you're just doing the best you can yeah and I think we're all still doing the best we can I think that she made that point very clear especially when she said there's no end there's not no victory it's just we get through it yeah as best you can there's not there's not a best practice for any of this crap I agree yeah I think she didn't get to be a professional by spewing this crap out. Yeah. Yeah. She really. She's really eloquent. Yeah. Yeah. And she she took all my thoughts that I had and put them out really nicely. Yeah. yeah. And you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's she it's says, not a just hopeful read. Yeah. It's not. But it's a real read. It's a real read, and it's not like pessimistic outlook it's mm-hmm. just this is what it is this was my day-to-day life this was the weather this day yeah and it's just like life and it's weird to think because the pandemic feels so huge that we're all really just getting by like yeah. we did before and like we'll do after and that's that's a weird thought to have like because it feels so big yeah it felt so big because she's so different yeah. and of course it still feels big because it's a pandemic but it was comforting to know that a lot of my problems and our problems are sh- shared across the yeah. world. Everyone has them. Yeah. So, like you said, I don't feel better, but I don't feel alone. And yeah. sometimes that's good enough. Yeah. And I think that's the really the, how that this diary played out was it was just this is another thing that you live through. Yeah. It's another, it's a horrible thing and it's been scary and it's been rough, but globally we're all just trying to get through it and make it to the end 
And I don't think that is a victory. I don't think it is something to celebrate. I don't think it's something to rush through. It'll happen when it happens. And I, I like that's a painful thing for most people because we either want to ignore it, suppress it, or fight it. And it's hard to, to realize that you just do your part and that's it. Yeah. So, ooh, what a pessimist. Like, what a weird way to end this. Mm. Okay, okay, well. Okay, so, you know what? You, let's try to make it a little positive. You say we'll do your part and that's it. But your part is so important to the greater machine. If we're cogs yeah. in a wheel, we are a machine. We are the wheels of the machine that is yeah. fighting a pandemic. We're doing it. And little by little, we're getting it done. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're making it. Yeah. And I think that's like, we're putting in the work. We're doing it. We're putting in the work. It reminds me of like the little train that could. We're just like yeah. chugging along, putting in the work. We're doing our part. And I found out that guy's <laughs> Twitter. What is it? <laughs> He's Hassan B. He's Hassan the Hun. That's his Twitter handle. This is Yelly Man. This is Yelly Guy. He is my news source. He posts on Twitch like every day at two. He yells a lot, but he's very informative. Um, and I I love him. So Hassan, if you're listening to this, which I know you are, obviously. <laughs> send me some merch. I appreciate it. And give me a shout out. But do it nicely because you're you kind of scare me. At the Columbus Public Library, sir. Yes. If you need the address, just give it a Google. Yeah, just Google. Um, Columbus, Georgia, not Ohio. Yes. Just, you know, um, specify. The cool one. Yeah, the, the cooler Columbus, <laughs> as we're called. Yeah. Okay, so Yelly Guy and Wuhan Diary. Yeah. Diary? It's just diaries, not diaries. Sorry. The, the singular diary of Wuhan. <laughs> not my favorite thing to read. I don't yeah. love reading other people's diaries. It felt very intrusive. Um, and it's, it's reading a diary. So it's not the most exciting read, but I, I really did get a lot of out of what I did yeah. read. I didn't finish it, but I really did love. And it was, it was a good one. So I hope that all of our listeners out there will give it a, give it a read. Even It's an easy pick-up, put-down. So even if you picked it up, flipped to a day, and read it, and yeah. did that a couple times, I think there are parts of it that could resonate with you. Yeah. So it's worth it. Oh, and send us, like, okay, so, like, if you did any quarantine diary-esque things, like, some people did vlogs and some people did, like, posting somewhere, um, mm-hmm. what was yours like? Or if you're comfortable, if your kids or whoever you were taking care of yeah. did that. I know that was a lot of assignments um, to keep people, yeah, you know, in the zone for kids or for people in um, care homes. If you wanted to share anything like that with us, that would be really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see that spectrum of experience. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. I want to know. I'm nosy. So just <laughs> tell me all about your life. Um, yeah. Let's connect. That sounds great. Write me a letter. A day. I feel like that's a lot. A handwritten letter a day. Oh, my goodness. I want to know all about your experiences. To the to the grocery store where your mask <laughs> um i don't need a handwritten letter a day but i'll read whatever you send lane just because okay. i'm nosy okay guys uh i think that wraps it up <laughs> <laughs> it devolved at the end sorry we were we did too good for too long so yeah yeah it was good um i think it was a really good pandemic-versary discussion that we had here today. Happy pandemic-versary. Um, happy one year. Glad we're still in it together. 
If we can say anything, we can say we're in it together. Yeah. So go team. Woo-hoo. Go us. Go us. We did it. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So what's our next book? No idea. We don't know. We don't know. So we planned through spring. Yeah. Um, so the next book is a surprise. Uh, if you have any suggestions, throw them at us on the Discord. Yes. Or in your handwritten letter. Yes. You know what? We would do really well. He would have a great time with the suggested reads. Yeah. So I would love that. Yeah, and I'm reading like seven books right now, so maybe one of those suggested reads will be one I'm reading that would make my life easier. Ooh, that would make your life easier. Um, I'm not reading anything at the moment because I just finished this, so. Ooh, I'm reading Ooh. this. It's called, um, it's called The Truth Is, and it's about a non-binary love story. Yeah. Um. It's definitely like Alphabet Mafia, and you know the only contemporary romance I read is Alphabet Mafia. Yes, I know that. It's so is there pining? Of course there is. Yeah. And there's like, okay, I do love it. Yeah. Um. I'm just like really into this story, and I haven't started it yet, but it's about a girl, and she's gonna. She loses someone close to her, and she's, like, struggling, and then she meets this kid, Danny, and Danny is transitioning. Uh-huh. So, and she's like, what? Who? What are these feelings I'm having? And I just love a good story that's questioning everything about yourself and simping at the same time. Love it. You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. Yeah, and I see uh, that little young adult sticker. So, you know I love when these stories are themed, geared towards young adults, because I think... These are the people who need that learning experience. Yeah, so, um, anyway, throw up your recommendations. Check us out on Discord. Hope you enjoyed our pandemic podcast. It won't always be this way. Hopefully the next one will be back to our juicy roasting. Yes, uh, this one was pretty somber, but, yeah, hopefully next time, um, it'll be pretty juicy for you guys. Thanks for hanging out and listening with us. This has been Parents Read the Darndest Things. I'm Kayla. I'm Lane. Bye, guys. Bye.